sippers of tea, riders and drivers of bits and blood and bone, and any and all interested others. Welcome to another day at All Things Georgette, where deceivers are believers. Yes, my lords and ladyships, today, as always, my honored guests and I will travel into the heart of Georgette Hare's Regency romances to explore a world apart. I am your consummate hostess, Marsha, and as usual, I am joined by um, people that are related to me by blood. Uh, In this instance, ladies Sandy and Laura, we may be visited by Lady Sharon quite soon, but that's a little bit of a surprise to all of us, Um, may or may not. Anyway, today is a real pearl clutcher. Our conversation will be on the subject of (coughs) illness in Georgette Hire, consumption, the dropsy, gunshot wounds, sick headaches, sword fight injuries, as well as their remedies, bound handkerchiefs, burnt feathers, vinaigrettes, all manner of potables from brandy and wine and tea and water are the subject of the day. I hope everyone is feeling well. And on that note, I'm going to turn it over to my ladyships, my friendly friends and uh, blood relations. What do you guys think about illness in Georgette? Love it. I love all the illness in Georgette. I love the, I love the gunshot wounds and the, and the, the, and the remedies, the remedies um, are, are wonderful. Um, um, <clears throat> the lavender water that's always used for the headaches and, and, um, and the, the fresh squeezed lemons and the um, uh, sal volatile and the, uh, uh, um, oh, and of course, we can never forget Dr. Ratcliffe's uh, restorative pork jelly, which, which <laughs> appears many times in different Georgettes. That so. sounds so disgusting. <laughs> I, I really don't know if I could manage right. it. My arm could be falling off, and I don't believe I would have any of Dr. Ratcliffe's um, pork jelly. But um, well, yeah. well, clearly, yeah. as a writer, she... she, she collected these little bits from, you know, from old letters and things that apparently she, she went to tag sales and found old letters and things and just worked from those. And and there was probably some mention in there. And she, she actually uses Dr. Ratcliffe's restorative pork jelly several times um, to, to great comic effect in, in several different novels and stories. Um, and and uh, one of my favorites in in terms of in terms of how she uses illness, I always love the the dowagers and the the women um, of whose sort of main main locus of power is resorting to their vinaigrette. So whenever something that is distasteful or that they don't want to deal with, they fall into a swoon or say that their their gout is acting up and they you know kick out their visitors and all the rest of it. Or if they're upset at an unexpected visitor or something is not going their way, um, then they're resorting to the vinaigrette. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I I very much enjoy is um, burnt feathers. Like, what is that about? Like, who who had the idea of burning feathers and how did it become restorative? Um, Oh, his his lordship, um, Stephen, has, has made an appearance, a loud appearance. Um, But but yes, to return to my theme. One of the things that I enjoy is the way uh, 
she she weaves it into plots. And several times there are situations where someone is wounded, for example, by a carriage ride that's gone awry, like a wheel has fallen off a carriage and someone falls and never to their deaths, but, um, well, not never. There have been deaths uh, associated with carriage rides, um, especially in Devil's Cub. One of the first things that happens is the Devil's Cub um, is his carriage is attacked by highwaymen and he um, simply shoots his his gun out the window and leaves brains all over the, the road from this high highwayman that he's killed. And uh, yeah, and he's so brutal. It was like, it's a, it's a way of showing how brutal he is and how he needs to be... Um, tamed, if you will. But generally speaking, these these carriage accidents are a conduit to bring people together at a nearby inn where the healing happens. Now, you never hear about hospitals in Georgette. I mean, except I don't even remember any hospitals, really. So it's, it's more no. about like if there's a nearby inn, an innkeeper is suddenly responsible for, you know, getting a sawbones to come and dig out a bullet or amputate an arm or set a broken leg or whatever it is. And in the case of one of my very favorites, whose name is escaping me? I can't remember which one this is. Maybe you guys which will book? remember, but it's the one where the, the, of course the gray eyed heroine who is a retiring shy person. And they were just going to marry each other out of convenience because it was time for him to get married. She was of course secretly in love with him, but had given up long ago, any hope of marrying him. And they're brought together Sprig, by Sprig Muslin. Sprig Muslin by these pesky children. And he is somehow injured. And um, this, this, the children are, uh, who are, you know, teenagers, um, that wonderful character. I think her name is Cherry uh, or some, maybe, maybe I'm. No, that's a different one. That's no, a different one. I think one. it's Amanda Smith or something. Amanda like Smith. Amanda like she's Smith. given herself a, um, uh, and then not, what's that word that uh, it's not your name. She's given herself a, an anonymous yeah, John, a John Doe sort of name, right? Exactly. So she won't be discovered to her grandfather because she's run away. But he has um, begrudgingly taken her under his wing, and his um, gray-eyed, the gray-eyed heroine, who is a, a remarkably and admirably patient woman, sees the situation for what it is, does not fly off the handle or come to conclusions that she must not, and so the um, the young girl turns to her when this man is injured and has her come to the inn. And we have the pleasure as readers of watching the two of them fall rightly and properly in love as she heals his injuries and he begins to see um, the strength of her character and her ability to organize a sick room, which again is often in the plots of Georgette, something that reveals to us that a heroine is worth her salt, right? If she does not faint at the sight of blood, if she's resolute and she knows what to do in a sick room and she's not silly or fussy, but she can actually address problems and, and rip bandages off of shirts and turn them into tourniquets and so on and so forth. Anyway, it's a good plot device. And or in that case, it does. Hey, it, in, in that case, um, it, in Sprig Muslin, she also... Uh, a part of her particular charm, our heroine's particular charm, is that she's so accepting of all of the ridiculousness, and she maintains her sense of humor throughout. And that's exactly. what—that's the key that yeah. really ends up charming him. And the, now, in the grand Sophie, so, right? Yeah, in the grand I Sophie, say, I would say that 
with her, each her other skill. and with these who laugh together. So mm-hmm. that's part of the they they have uh, the opportunity to laugh through his pain at the silly children who are um, being adorably ridiculous. Continue. The grand and Sophie. I was just going to say with with the grand Sophie that that's her her skill in the in the sick room is is admirable and her ability to to coax the young sick Amabel who's the oh, young sister right. and that that's the moment actually when our hero or our hero finally realizes he's in love with her is he sees he sees her that's with his little right. sister and his and- own his own betrothed he's 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 engaged to somebody else and his own betrothed won't go near the sick room because she doesn't want to get right. sick. Herself. She doesn't want to get infected. And doesn't want to be, doesn't want to have anything to do with his little sister. Um, right. Uh, and remember the other true suitor is the poet, you know, the, 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 Oh yes. And, and, yeah. and Grand Sophie. And Augustus can think only of writing a, an ode on, <laughs> on a child. Sonnet to a sick but, child. <laughs> but it's uh, char- the, the worthy Charles Rivington brings forced hothouse grapes and That's and right. stays by the bedside. So in that book, it's very clear that people who are frightened of contagion are right are to they, be are to be uh, they are they are false. They are not the uh, the people they should be. They would not fit in. In our current pandemic situation, right? Um, they, they mm-hmm. uh, Georgette, I don't think would approve of all the masks, and um, you know, who knows? Maybe Georgette would have been a, a Trumper. You know, it's it's entirely possible. But um, but you know, <laughs> Amabel, you? Amabel is um, one of the rare instances where a child is laid is is laid particularly low. Usually, she leaves the little kids alone. Well, and the the incident in Frederica of the balloon and Felix, who's dangling from the side of the balloon in the freezing air. He's been tempted to jump on. And that's right. That's right. And then uh, even after he's fallen, it's his weak constitution that causes them to, you know, be in the in the lather of concern which is only relieved by the restorative pork jelly (laughs) previously mentioned which she's thinking of when he wants to make his proposal to her and and he he backs up the reluctant guardian who has taken on frederica but also all of her siblings as his pretend That's that's right those are now his pretend uh wards but in that right in that moment and before really the, the he he takes responsibility for them and, and there's that breathtaking cross-country race yes where he's chasing the balloon, the balloon to as it's flying across the countryside yeah. and he's trying to follow it um and uh yes that's that's a real nail and that's, a, that's an instant and that's an instance where our hero is actually shown to be a mensch because of of the effort that he makes in the sick room. That's true too. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think the frozen grapes is, is another. I see that we've been joined by Lady Sharon, uh, which is a lovely surprise. We didn't expect to see her. How doth thou, Lady Sharon? I'm I'm down one tooth and up another one. <laughs> 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 you a visit to the to the dentist uh, recently to, to having my tooth drawn as Georgette would say another illness but yes I have been to the dentist and it's appropriate to our discussion today it took way longer than anyone thought 
including the tooth drawer. So I was a trifle late to the party. Okay. I'm just going to pretend that you're making that up because we're talking (laughs) about illness and uh, disability and that you're perfectly fine. And you're sitting in your, um, in your tea room, sipping ratafia, which is what I hope you're doing. Um, I'm, I am sipping tea rather carefully because my lips are numb and it has a tendency to roll down the unexpected side. <laughs> well, this gives me a great opportunity to propose a business opportunity to you, which has just occurred to me. I think perhaps um, we should go into the business of, of rolling out pork jelly as a restorative. <laughs> And who knows, maybe it's your COVID and we could, have, we could be, you know, forget AstraZeneca. Apparently there's a few little problems. <laughs> you know, maybe pork jelly the, the whole time was right under our noses. All those problems <laughs> the whole problem. And Laura is Lady Laura. Well, you you very looking for a death scene that she she promises is heart rending. But is. Uh, we're, so we're going to hear that very soon. Well, you but, you very rarely you, you very rarely actually see anybody um, taking the restorative pork jelly. The restorative pork jelly is just spoken of as a possible antidote to the situation. And uh, Frederica so we, wants it for Felix, but you never actually see Felix ingest it. Right. And uh, somehow it dampens the ardor of her suitor to, to have to deal with restorative pork jelly, which he tells her when he finally does propose to her. And she says, but it was restorative pork jelly, at which point he takes that as a yes. You know, brandy is often and, um, you know, other sort of, you know, what do you call that when they uh, not refined wines, restorative. Uh, Fortified wines um, are are often taken and and shown to be quite restorative after someone has fainted or uh, someone's in a duel, um, and and yet I, it, it must be said, inflicting injury is sometimes a mark of quality and character. For example, in Devil's Cub, when our heroine, oh, yes. of course. when she Mary or Mary Challoner, Mary Challoner, when she shoots. Her um, would-be lover, Vidal, in arm Vidal, because he's a little too frisky. She um, she he, she earns his respect, and she actually knows exactly what to do after she has shot him. She rips up something and and makes a bandage, and he says admiringly, "Oh, you're not afraid of blood. I see that you can you can deal with this this situation." Like basically, and he says, "There's only one other woman." That that would be that would do such a thing, and that's my mother, and that's when you know, bam, 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 right? He's in love, <laughs> right? He doesn't know it yet, but you do. That's right. So, well, another another favorite favorite scene like that, of course, is from the Grand Sophie when she purposely shoots. Oh yes, um, of course, Ch- Chalman Lee or whatever his name is, um, in the arm, so that just just so that he won't be able to be in a fight with somebody because Charles won't, won't um, 
won't challenge him if he's if he's already injured because that's the male code. And so she gets him to look out the window at something and says, "Stand quite still and just see if you can look there." And then she shoots him in the arm, and the, <laughs> and it's. Right. it's a, a lot of shooting, a lot of intentional injuries. She does it so that she can lie to Charles's sister and say that they were set upon by highwaymen and that Lord, whatever his name is, very heroically takes a bullet from the highwaymen when in fact she shot him. <laughs> All right, Lady Laura has found something. I found key. a passage because illness, alas, leads to death, which is very, very rarely a plot point of note, True. except in the inheritance of vast fortunes or, you know, such things. Our our hero characters do not die, except in an infamous army, which in which I think uh, m- many of her, it, it may be her finest book. I, I, I think, think it, there's a good, good argument for it. This it, is an appropriate moment, Lady Laura, for you to, to share with our huge, no doubt, huge audience. Huge, yes. Um, your, um, your anecdote about Christopher oh, Hitchens, yes. which I think is appropriate he, here. Yes, he has, he said, and he was truly a, a huge fan of the military. His father was a, in the Navy, British Navy, and that was... He really believed that was what was the best of the best of people were those who went to war in a good cause. Um, it, there's a long trail of dots between that and his support of the Iraq War, with which, of course, I, I and everyone else tangled with him fiercely. But uh, this book he regarded as the best of war novels, and this is a scene. As you may remember, the whole novel is built around her her stable of the finest characters that she's written about over and over again, and their grandchildren, and so on. And the, yep. there's a great ball, and this was evidently a fact, that many of the English came to see the end of Boney, which was anticipated to be just a, a walk in the park and, a, and something to watch. And news came of the attack at, at what would be called Waterloo, in the middle of this gala ball with many of the usual intrigues. And, and this is the, as the announcement gets through the crowd from scores of faces, the polite company masks seem to have slipped. People had forgotten that at balls, they must smile and hide whatever care or grief they owned under bright artificial fronts. Some of the senior officers were looking grave. Here and there, a rigid, meaningless smile was pinned to a mother's white face, or a girl stood with a fallen mouth and blank eyes fixed on a scarlet uniform. A queer, almost greedy emotion shone in many countenances. Life had become suddenly an urgent business, racing towards disaster, and the craving for excitement, the breathless moment compound of fear and grief and exaltation, when the mind sharpened and the senses were stretched as taut as the strings of a violin surged up under the veneer of good manners and shone behind the dread in shocked young eyes. For all the shrinking from tragedy looming ahead, there was yet an unacknowledged eagerness to hurry to meet whatever horror lurked in the future. If existence were to sink back to the humdrum, there would be disappointment behind the relief and a sense of frustration. The ball went on. Couples, hesitating at first, drifted back into the waltz. 
Sir William Ponsonby seized a girl in a sprig muslin dress round the waist and said gaily, come along, I can't miss this. It is quite my favorite scene. It is quite my favorite. Georgiana felt a tug at her sleeve and turned to find Hay, stammering with excitement, his eyes blazing. Georgie, we're going to war, going into action against Boney himself. Oh, I say, come back and dance this. Was there ever anything so splendid? How can you, Hay? she exclaimed. You don't know what you're talking about. Don't I, by Jove, why? We've been living for this moment. I won't listen to you. It's not splendid. It's the most dreadful thing that has never happened. But Georgie, go and find someone else to dance with you, she said, almost crying, and turned away from him to beside Lady Worth. He stared at her in a good deal of astonishment, but was diverted from his purpose of following her to make his peace by having his arm grasped by a kindred spirit. Hey, have you heard, said Harry Alastair eagerly. Ours have been ordered to Bryn le Comte. I'm off immediately. Are you coming? Oh, no, of course. You'll stay for General Maitland. By Jove, won't we give the French a hiding? And then cut to, you know, Colonel Audley, our hero, who's the, you know, the, the at this point, the beloved of the impossible Babs child, is... He carries orders for the Duke, and he comes across, late in the battle, he comes across Harry Alastair, Bab's youngest brother. Almost at Audley's feet, a boy lay in a sticky pool of his own blood. He looked very young. There was a faint smile on his dead lips, and one hand lay palm upward on the ground, the fingers curling inwards in an oddly pathetic gesture. Audley was looking down at him when he heard his name feebly called. He turned his head and saw Lord Harry Alastair not far from him, lying on the ground, propped up by knapsacks. He stepped over the dead boy at his feet and went to Harry and dropped on his knee beside him. Harry, are you badly hurt? I don't know. I don't think I I can be, Harry replied with the ghost of a smile. Only I don't seem able to move my legs. As a matter of fact, I can't feel anything below my waist. The colonel had seen death too many times not to recognize it now in Harry's drawn face and clouding eyes. He took one of the boy's hands and held it, saying gently, That's famous. We must get you to the rear as soon as these hordes of cavalry have drawn off. I'm so tired, Harry said with a long sigh. Is George safe? I hope so. I don't really know, old fellow. Give him my love if you see him. He closed his eyes but opened them again after a minute or two and said, It's awful, isn't it? Yes, the worst fight I was ever in. Well, I'm glad I was in it anyway. To tell you the truth, I haven't liked it as much as I thought I should. It's seeing one's friends go one after the other and being so hellish frightened oneself. I know. Do you think we can hold out, Charles? Yes, of course we can, and we will. By Jove, it'll be grand if we beat Boney after all, Harry said drowsily. The colonel, a doctor, bent over a man lying beside him. The colonel said urgently, can't you get this boy to the rear when the cavalry draws off again? A cursory glance was cast at Harry. Waste of time, said the doctor. I'm sorry, but I've enough on my hands with those I can save. The colonel said no more. Harry seemed to be dropping asleep. 
Audley stayed holding his hand, but looked up at a mounted officer of the Royal Staff Corps who was standing close by. What's happening? And it goes on. And the colonel bent over Lord Harry. I must go, Harry. Must you? Harry's voice was growing fainter. I wish you could stay. I don't feel quite the thing, you know. I can't stay. God knows I would, but I must get back to the Duke. Of course, I was forgetting. I shall see you later, I dare say. Yes, later, the colonel said, a trifle unsteadily. Goodbye, old fellow. He pressed Harry's hand, laid it gently down, and rose to his feet. His horse stood waiting, snorting uneasily. He mounted, saluted Harry, who raised a wavering hand in return, and rode away to find the duke. And that's the end. You know, then the wow. next chapter begins. A great scene. A great scene, is it not? Truly and, and a great scene. So beautifully written. Beautifully written and truly, you know, that's that is the youngest grandson of the Duke of Alistair, who is her Duke first, of Avon. Yeah, right. The Duke of Avon, her first character in the Black Moth, mm-hmm. and you know, oh, here so he is sad. slipping away, yeah. and uh, and it, it I, to me, it shows all of her, all of her brilliance with dialogue, but in a totally different register than we mm-hmm. normally hear mm-hmm. at all. And so, you know, this was her tribute to Waterloo, and. And it's just such a brilliantly Beautiful. realized scene. And, and of course, you know, it's followed by more, you know, Georgiana, Lord Hay is dead and Harry Alistair and the Georgiana who had said, no, I, you know, I won't dance with you. You don't even know what's going on is devastated to think that she, you know, she turned him away. Mm-hmm. And, just all in all, such a such a brilliant. Really, I'm assigning it to Dr. Timothy John Corrigan, uh, so that <laughs> who, who does not <laughs> certain people who don't quite understand right. Georgette and quite and we're on yet. a bit of a mission. Hence, this podcast. Yes, we're on a mission to to spread the word. No, that's beautifully chosen, contrasting scenes. The excitement of the ball. The, the naivete right. of these young men who have um, been brainwashed around nationalism and brainwashed the way the women were often seen um, are often seen brainwashed by their social norms, as Sharon often points out, that often a book rests on our understanding of their um, obedience to the necessity of their obedience to um, a whole host of regulations and rules that they accept as their reality, but we see as um, incredibly um, uh, oppressive and ridiculous. And I think Georgette Heyer did as well. I think she saw the, the, the restrictiveness and the, and the chaining of the personalities and the talents of these women. And she gave them little avenues to express themselves in, for the most part, without contradicting the the social norms, because that was such a terrifying fall off. If you did that, you were nothing, and you had nothing, and you would be thrown out of out of society, and most likely out of your family, and put somewhere if you were lucky. If not, maybe you could become a companion or a governess or something, but there were very few options if you kicked over the traces. And and 
One thing that Georgette does very well, as opposed to just about any other writer who followed her in this genre, is that she respects that those conventions that her heroines lived under, and you don't have a lot of, you know, a lot of flower sellers marrying a duke because they get confused in the night or some extremely unlikely plot, meet cute plot piece like that. She, she researched, of course, and, and understood those, um, those requirements, those social obligations. And she wrote to those, to, to what her heroines and heroes would have actually experienced. Laura, later on, uh, the, uh, Lord Worth, who is Charles Audley's brother, goes looking for him because he doesn't come back. And I think that is another just... That is a beautifully realized... Unbelievable scene where, with no dialogue to speak of, where um, Lord Worth is searching for his brother. And amid this unbelievable carnage and and what happened to these people with with these weapons at this time and of course she went there and she walked the ground and she knew exactly what she was talking about when she described it but um it's it, that's another really stunning piece where Lord Worth is desperately, you know, it doesn't matter that he's the Lord anymore. That's not going to help him. He's stripped down to a desperate brother looking for his beloved brother. And um, um, it's a very touching scene. Yeah. And, and it's worth saying that the two heroines of this novel who are, start out in the ballroom, uh, Bab's child and Judith, the taverner. Taverner, Lady Worth, yes, and and becomes late. But later in the in that novel, the way that they achieve permanent kinship is that they are the two of all the society matrons who go to near the battlefield to try to save the wounded, and it's a it's a horrifying mess and an abattoir that you know does never would touch any of. Georgette's normal plots, but it's in that that they find that they are completely uh, on the same page, and you know, um, and you know that they're going to f- move ahead in in being sisters, and uh, you know that 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 that's what makes it's them experience. So, yes, and yeah. so that's more than I, I've you know having talked about this. It it, it does seem to be a thread that. Those who are unafraid of illness and caring for other people, that is a pretty big measuring stick mm-hmm. when you come right down mm-hmm. to it. That that in um, the otherwise gala, the Grand Sophie, for example, the two suitors who are unafraid and willing to be by the bedside of the sick child are... Those are the quality folk that will run. And, and they that, wind up victorious. They and wind up the victorious. And just as in Frederica, the utterly unaccustomed Earl, or I can't remember who he is. His, he's a noble folk. He's Earl, yeah. He, he is the Marcus. No, he's Albert Stoke. Mar- 
He's the Marquis of Elverstoke. That's right, and he, but he's the the bedside man of uh, of yes. And on that note, my ladies, um, what a fabulous discussion this was, and we have hopefully um, gotten people uh, interested in picking up an infamous army if they do not know that novel, which which actually is um, uh, remarkable. Um, but but even your your more average run of the mill Georgette, yes. like sprig muscle muslin. Here's, here's a concept I want to introduce, which every review I've ever read of someone, including most recently hearing um, Stephen Fry. Fry, it they all say I've read them to thread. I have read them until the pages are falling apart. These why and what makes them books that you almost obsessively read and reread and reread. And I think what that, is that? I think, um, gentle auditors, that this would be an excellent place to begin our next podcast. Um, sort of a little in-depth self-reflection about the role of these novels in our own lives, why we care about them, why we seem to have Choose endless to things to say them. about them. Right. And um, why don't we make that the subject of our next discussion? And until then, my dear friends, lords, ladies, um, writers of bits and blood and, um, and sippers of ratafia and um, healers uh, with tourniquets, uh, ripped from the shirts of your beloveds. Thank you for being with us this evening. And we will talk to you again uh, next time on All Things Georgette. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.